Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Bill Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Welcome to episode 161 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I get into part four of our five-part series on Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians. We're going to be looking at chapters 9 through 11. It's going to be really really good as we look at some real life examples of people who have walked as Jesus walked and people that have really blown it and how to approach those people in a godly way. Also, I want to let you know that my third book, The Final Abominable Temple, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. So you can go check that out, pre-order it uh, for Kindle, uh, paperback, or audio versions. There's a link for it in the show notes. So please go pre-order your copy today. And I would really, really appreciate it. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find everything that we do, all of our content on OmegaFrequency.com and the Omega Frequency YouTube and Rumble channels, as well as the Omega Frequency podcast. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into episode 161. Steph, thanks again for joining me on Reclaiming the Faith. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? Man, I'm, you know, I wish we didn't have school tomorrow morning. (laughs) Yeah, back to school for us teachers. Yeah. Hey, thanks for putting up with me this summer over the last two months as I've been finishing the book and uh, working on this album. Y'all have been very kind. Oh, I thought you were thanking me. I am thanking you, you said, for putting oh, up with oh, me. Oh, okay. I yeah. thought you were thanking the audience too. No, no, I'm thanking you. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so we're in part four of Polycarp. Did you want to give any more updates on things with the... I did in the show notes. Oh, okay. In the, uh, in the intro. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Polycarp part four. Are you ready for this? Uh, yeah, let's do this. (laughs) All right. So at the end of part three, we were talking about how people need to really fix their hope and uh, hang fast, hold fast to Jesus Christ. And we talked a little bit about how um, Polycarp was calling us to imitate Jesus. And uh, Peter definitely tells us to do that uh, in his first epistle. So With that in mind, that little bit of context, now we're going to start talking about some people uh, in Polycarp's day, some of his peers that have walked as Jesus walked. So let's get into chapter nine. I appeal now to every one of you to hear and obey the call of holiness and to exercise the same perfect fortitude that you have seen with your own eyes in the blessed Ignatius and Rufus, and Zosimus, and not in them alone, but in a number of your own townsmen as well, 
and to say nothing of Paul himself and the other apostles. Be very sure that the course of these men was not run in vain, but faithfully and honorably, and that they have now reached a well-earned place at the side of the Lord whose pains they have shared. Their hearts were not set on this world of ours, but on him who died for our sakes and was raised up again for us by God. Yeah, so Polycarp had given us all, as I stated earlier, a call to fix our hearts and our eyes on Jesus and to imitate him. And then he gave us some real life examples. I don't know if you've ever like heard people say, well, Jesus did that, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, but that's Jesus, right? And yeah. Polycarp's like, yeah. So let me give you some real life examples of people like Ignatius, remember him? He wrote me a letter. You guys yeah. remember that, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is Ignatius of Antioch. So he talks about Ignatius, Rufus, and Zosimus. And uh, Rufus and Zosimus were possibly, according to some tradition, two guys that were with Ignatius when he was led to Rome to be executed, and they were executed there as well. Mm. We don't know that for certain, but definitely they were... Uh, both martyrs like Ignatius based on the context of what he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Now this obey the call of holiness. We urge you to obey the call of holiness. That's, that's an interesting uh, phrase there. Um, When I saw that, uh, I made me think about two things. One, uh, the Holy Spirit's job is to help us walk in holiness. I mean, that's one of the main jobs Mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit to help us walk as Jesus walked. And so if it's the Holy Spirit, it's going to help us walk in a holy way. Um, You know, there are evil spirits that encourage people to do evil, you know, and so a lying spirit that like lies, you know, that kind of thing. So the Holy Spirit should be helping us to walk more and more in in a holy way. And also as Peter was quoted by Polycarp, uh, uh, Peter's first letter uh, to imitate Jesus. Remember that uh, passage in First Peter where he quotes Leviticus and he says, therefore be holy as God is holy. Mm-hmm. That idea. Yeah. What's standing out to you in chapter nine? Well, I was looking at that um, right after that, the same perfect fortitude that you have seen with your own eyes. So, um, fortitude is like steadfastness, right? Mm. So, um, it makes that kind of thing makes me think of like, um, I think it's in Ezekiel where it talks about like giving them like foreheads of flint and like there's a good kind of stubborn, mm. like it's, um, and holiness is being set apart. It's, um, it's like there's this commitment, this deep, deep level of commitment to integrity and to the truth and walking in holiness and honoring God with our lives. And then, you know, he goes on and talks about these real life examples and he's like, don't let their, you know, their work be in vain, Mm. you know, continue to give evidence of the cause that they were behind. Yeah. And he encourages them as well by saying like, you have townsmen that have done this. Mm. So people from Philippi that have done this. Yeah. And he reminds them about Paul. 
how Paul, you know, didn't give up the confession in Philippi uh, when he was being beaten, right, with Silas. And coming toward the end of the paragraph, he says something that's just, it's it's pretty interesting. He says, they have now reached a well-earned place Mm. at the side of the Lord whose pains they shared. That's an interesting phrase, right? Because we're, we're taught this idea of grace means like given that which you didn't earn, mm-hmm. right? But Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Right. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for uh, he cannot uh, deny himself, right? So that's Second Timothy two at in the teens. I don't remember exactly where, yeah. but um, it, it's a really interesting concept to think about. What what was standing out to you with that, or what do you think about that? Um, yeah, it kind of almost sounds like it's in contrast to the the you know grace alone, but it's you know it's evidence of the, our faith alone, it's evidence of the faith. Mm. It is this outward manifestation of what is inside. So. Yeah. Yeah. And this could also be speaking of uh, certain rewards based yeah. on holy behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're, you're getting in to be with Jesus based on uh what he did, right? Faith yeah. in what he did, but we are going to be repaid, each of us, according to what we have done in the body, whether both good or bad, right? That's uh, the Second Corinthians chapter five passage. Yeah. So there's gonna be some type of rewards and punishments. I don't know how that's all going to play out, um, yeah. especially like the reigning with him aspect, like mm-hmm. what is that gonna look like? Um, who are we gonna reign over? That's a... that's. A, a source of some pretty fun speculation. Uh, But um, yeah, well, we can trust God. I mean, the judge of all the earth is going to do right. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there are real rewards for for those who stand fast in the midst of uh, persecution, torture. Mm. Yeah. All right. So you want to continue? Go to chapter 10. Stand firm then in these ways, taking the Lord for your example. Be fixed and unshaken in your faith. Care for each other with a brother's love and make a common cause for the truth. Give way to one another in the Lord's own spirit of courtesy, treating no one as an inferior. When it is in your power to do a kindness, never put it off into another time. For charity is death's reprieve. Let everyone respect his neighbor's rights so that the heathen may have no occasion to find fault with your way of life. By so doing, you will not only earn approval for the good you do, but you'll avoid bringing the Lord into any disrepute. Woe be to anyone who does bring the Lord into disrepute. So impress upon everybody that they are to be as sober and sensible as you are yourselves. So what was standing out to you in that chapter, Steph? Um, I guess just the beginning where it's talking about this continuing on. I mean, this is 
at least the third paragraph or third chapter where he is just continuing in with this theme of persevering in the truth and standing firm, don't not being shaken, being like deeply rooted, this kind of idea. Um, and then it goes into, uh, you know, these ideas of not showing favoritism and, you know, serving others. And that kind of reminds you of like the book of James and um, how, you know, we can't show partiality. Yeah, that's kind of what was coming to mind for me. Yeah, so much of this is um, loving our neighbor as ourself. Right. But how we do that, he says, is by taking the Lord as our example, mm -hmm. looking at Jesus and the way that he went after people that were going astray. Um, when it was in his power to help, he did, right. you know. And, uh, and he also would rebuke when necessary. It wasn't to drive away, but it was to heal, you know, it was to help people to genuinely repent. So like it was bringing to mind this passage from Leviticus 19, where um, uh, we get the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. That's where the second greatest commandment comes from. And so just to give a little bit of context, because the verse is Leviticus 19, 18, but I'll just read 17 and 18. Of course, there's so much in that chapter about how to love your neighbor, but it says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Now, Jesus pulls from that in Matthew 5. Don't hate your brother from your heart, right? Mm -hmm. If you have, you've murdered him. So this says, do not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So you've got someone that's doing wrong to you. Now, this is considered countrymen. How far does this extend? That's a big debate in Jesus's day. Who is my neighbor, right? In Luke chapter 10. Now, Jesus goes so far as to say, it's like not so much a question of who is your neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? You know, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? How can I live that out? And Jesus says, it's showing mercy. And Jesus actually connects that to the greatest commandment of loving the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving my neighbor as myself, by showing mercy. And that's an interesting idea of mercy. So it starts by with our heart, refusing to hate the guy that's hurt, that's sinning against us. But needing to reprove the person or rebuke the person when they are sinning, whether that's like sinning against us or hurting themselves or hurting someone else. Like there is a need for rebuke there, which Polycarp says, right? He says, woe be upon anyone who brings the Lord into disrepute. Basically like this is bad. If we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're giving unbelievers legitimate in their minds reason to reject Jesus or right. to blaspheme the name. You're misrepresenting him. Right. And so Polycarp is rebuking certain members of the Philippian church for not loving their neighbor as themselves. 
right? And that is part of loving his neighbor, Polycarp, is to reprove, reprove them, but not take vengeance nor bear a grudge. And that's going to come up in the next chapter because we, uh, Polycarp again gives a real life example for what he's talking about. And he does it with a situation going on in the church at Philippi, kind of like Paul brings up Utica and Syntyche. I believe it is in chapter four of Philippians, these two women that can't get along. And he's like, I urge them to get along in the Lord, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, Polycarp brings in uh, two people, a married couple who have fallen pretty hard Mm -hmm. um, because of sin. And so he's going to call, he's going to call, them out and he's going to um, call out their behaviors as a rebuke. And now he's also going to urge the Philippian church who has put them under discipline, rightly so, to not hold a grudge um, to try to restore them um, while still calling them to repent. Yeah. Seems like a segue into chapter 11, would you? That's right. You want to go ahead? Let's do it. My heart is sore for Valens. Sometime one of your clergy that he should have so little understanding of the office that was conferred on him. It moves me to warn you earnestly against any excessive fondness of money and to insist upon your absolute probity and integrity. You must keep yourselves from the slightest taint of wrong. If a man has no control over himself in matters of this sort, how can he possibly preach it to anyone else? If he fails to rise above the love of money, he will find himself corrupted by the worship of his idol and be classed with the heathen who know nothing of the divine judgment. Do we not know, Paul teaches us, that it is God's people who are to judge the world? I am not saying that I have seen or heard of anything of the sort among yourselves. You with whom the blessed Paul labored and who were his letters of commendation in those early days and of whom he made his boast in all those churches where alone God was known then in the time before we ourselves had received the knowledge of him. I feel the deepest sorrow for that man and his wife. May the Lord grant them real repentance. You too, for your part, must not be over severe with them, for people of that kind are not to be looked on as enemies. You have to restore them like parts of your own person that are ailing and going wrong, so that the whole body can be maintained in health. Do this, and you will be promoting your own spiritual welfare at the same time. All right, so we got Two people, we got Valens and his wife. What we can glean from this is that Valens was made an elder of some kind, most likely an elder or a presbyter. And um, he's not the head of the church, but he was high up. It seems like he was made an elder kind of quickly. Maybe they rushed to judgment a bit. They were not following some of the guidelines from 1 Timothy 3, or they thought they were, but they didn't really know the man because he clearly, and she, we don't have Valens' wife's name, but they had a love of money and they did not have godly character and they did not have integrity. By the way, that word probity means godliness, basically, like high moral character, right? Right. Can we say that they 
didn't vet them properly or that maybe they got into this position and it something came out that wasn't evidence before. I mean, I don't know that you can say that, you know, they didn't do their due diligence. It's they were corrupted. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. that's possible. You know, yeah, that that that's possible. I, I don't, we don't know all the details. Right. So, um, yeah, anyway. And maybe neither one of us is right. <laughs> yeah, he was corrupted by the worship of his, his idol, Polycarp says. So we don't know when that started. Right. Did it start after he became an elder or was it already going on? We just don't know. Right. But we do know that his God was his money mm. and you can't serve both God and money. Now, this is not during the time when uh, like presbyters were being paid. They certainly didn't have salaries, yeah. things like that. So most likely this is a rich man, uh, probably, probably in business somehow, um, or he was just really greedy. And Paul talks about this stuff in First Corinthians, or sorry, First Timothy six. How because of a love of money, many have been pierced with many griefs and wandered from the truth. Right? I mean, there's like this is there's some very severe warnings in First Timothy about the love of money, and also warnings about appointing someone as an overseer too early, because Paul says that some of them can fall under the same condemnation as the devil, which is a wild thing to think about. Probably one of, that's probably one of the strongest passages for someone who is saved, moving from a place of being saved to not being saved. Mm. If you can have a presbyter, actually in, in 1 Timothy 3, it's a bishop, basically an overseer becoming a share in the condemnation of the devil. And Paul calls them a convert, a recent convert. Yeah. This is all in 1 Timothy 3. So Paul is saying this is a person who has converted to Christianity, mm -hmm. right? So this is, a, this is a very serious deal that Polycarp is talking about. And so he is very saddened by them. Did you notice that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's... It's very gentle language. Like it's harsh, but it's it's loving and it's very it, there's a lot of tenderness to it. Um he uh he said his heart is sore. Like that just automatically implies that he's, you know, he's he's hurt by this. It's not like such angry language as it is just like, you know, saddened. Yeah. Yeah, he tells them not to regard this person as an enemy. Right. And to do their best to restore them. Mm. So this is, uh, you know, looking at uh, Galatians chapter six stuff. If a person sins, I, I want you to restore them, to seek their restoration. Yeah. Now, in order to do that, you have to confront. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they have been confronted most likely these people are out of the church at this time. So you could think it's kind of like what's been going on in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 
or in 1 Timothy 1. In 1 Corinthians 5, you have a, a dude who has been sleeping with his stepmother. Now, in Corinth, the church seems kind of proud about that for some reason, perhaps because they think the grace of God like covers that. We don't know, but they're not confronting it. And Paul is like, no, I command you to turn them over to Satan, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, you see similar language in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he talks about um, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul has turned over to Satan to teach them to not blaspheme. So something had gone wrong in their faith. They had been, according to Paul, their faith had been shipwrecked. Perhaps they're now seeing uh, what Jesus had done as just a common thing, not saving, just like a bless his heart guy. He, he thought he was the Messiah. They were treating what Jesus had done as common, not holy. Mm. So that's like a really strict like blasphemy definition, right? Mm-hmm. To treat something as whole, that is holy as if it's just common, right? And um, Paul says he turned them over to Satan. Now, if you compare that with the first Corinthians five issue and what happens in second Corinthians chapter two, it seems like when Paul turned someone over to Satan, it's in order to help them repent. Mm-hmm. Because in second Corinthians Two, you see this same person whom Paul has turned over to Satan. He tells the church, we got to try to bring this guy back so he's not ruined. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Polycarp has this same idea in mind. Like the church has turned them over and Polycarp's like, now we got to try to bring them back. We don't want them to share in the condemnation of the devil. That is your enemy. We don't want that because if this person can repent, That'll be a blessing to the whole church. It'll be a blessing to you if they will repent. You know, like your toe may be cancerous or something, but if we can get that toe, he cancerous is bad. There may be something wrong with your toe and it may be, you know, better to try to cut it off or something. But if we can get the toe healed, that would be better for your whole body. Like it would be better if we can get this thing healed rather than having to, you know, amputate it. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And that's kind of like Paul going into 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 language about basically, you know, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. If one part of the body rejoices, the whole part of the boy body rejoices. Uh, like we're interconnected in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I don't I don't see this very often in churches. I mean, you know, maybe there's people that are listening that have seen this done really well. But like, it seems like either things aren't confronted or they are like, they're confronted and then that person is cut off forever. And then that person just kind of shame spirals and, you know, never comes to a place of repentance, never has anybody checking in on them or, you know, whatever it might be. But it has to, it has to be done with love, like no matter how terrible the action that was committed against you or, or the offense, you have to try to address it in love or else it's never going to end in restoration. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've also seen issues be addressed in front of the whole body, but because it was just addressed in a 10-minute period, that was considered done. Yeah, now everything's announced fine because it was announced, right? Yeah. And so Polycarp says that he is praying 
that God would grant uh, Valens and his wife real repentance. What what do you what do you think that means? Like fake repentance versus real repentance. I also was really thrown off by the like may the Lord give them real repentance. Like mm. in my mind, repentance is something that has to come from the person and they have to be in the place that they are ready to, you know, confess what they did and see how it hurt God and hurt others. But I guess may the Lord um, grant them real repentance is implying that that's, I mean, that's coming from like God, it's like God breaking their heart. Yeah. And so I think that, I mean, I think that's what we should all be praying for. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's, he's drawing on Romans chapter two. And I think it's verse four, Romans two, four. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so I think Polycarp is drawing off that and praying that God's kindness would break the person's heart. They would have genuine sorrow, kind of like Peter, kind of like Paul, real sorrow that produces real genuine repentance. You know, there's a, there's a difference that we see between a sorrow, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter six. And I think Paul is drawing a, a comparison between Peter and Judas. That's just my own personal opinion, but those are two examples, right? Judas betrayed Jesus and at some point he realized I have totally screwed up and he felt very guilty about that, rightfully so. And he threw the money back at the chief priests and they're like, no, no, you keep it. And he goes and he, and he hangs himself Mm -hmm. instead of coming back to the disciples and trying to, to work repentance with them. Mm. He just takes it out on himself. Yeah. Instead of humbling himself. It's like he, he's missed the entire purpose of what Jesus came for. And it's... Yeah. He walked beside him for all those years and didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Peter does something horrific also and makes a total fool of himself, denies Jesus three times, Mm -hmm. calls down curses, right? And Jesus looks at him and Peter goes away, weep, and it's just overcome with this sorrow. The guy who said, you know, even if everybody leaves you, I'll never leave you. And Peter is not there at the crucifixion. He could have run off and then come back, you know, the, the, the morning and like been there for Jesus. He's not there. Where's Peter? We don't know. You know, he's overcome with shame, but eventually he repents. He works through that with Jesus. And it is the kindness of Jesus that leads Peter to repentance. Now, I mean, we could hide. We could hypothesize and think, you know, if Jesus, if Judas wouldn't have killed himself, would Jesus have come to Judas? I, I would probably think so, you know, who knows? But 
the kindness of God did lead Peter to repentance because he didn't take himself out of the game, but he was humble and he didn't say, I don't need to repent. You know, he, he didn't try to justify his actions, but he also didn't arrogantly reject God's kindness that was trying to lead him to repentance. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, real repentance is a real gift from God. And uh, so I don't know who has offended you. I don't know who has sinned against you. Um, But one thing that you can do, that we can do, is to pray that prayer of Polycarp. Very simple prayer. May the Lord grant that person real repentance. I'm not 